Amen. So we're going to be looking this morning uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Just to give you a little background here, I have, I've noticed a trend in uh, evangelical churches, uh, at least the ones that I grew up in, that when Mother's Day would come around, uh, we would just lavish mom with praises and adoration, and we just really sung her praises and and just lifted them up high on pedestal. And then when Father's Day would come around, we would just beat them over the head and just just shame them and 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 just uh, just all kinds of stuff. And so I've always made a commitment that whatever I do for Mother's Day, I will also do for Father's Day. Uh, if I praise the moms on Mother's Day, I'm gonna praise the dads on Father's Day. If, I'm, if I let the fathers have it on Father's Day, then I'm gonna let the mothers have it on Mother's Day. And, and I think one year I even preached on singleness. So, uh, but anyway, uh, a few years ago, I was meditating through First uh, Thessalonians 2, and um, uh, he, gives the, um, he gives the model of like a nursing mother, I was gentle toward you, and then on down in our text this morning, he says, as a father. And I thought, man, what a great model that motherhood as a model for ministry and fatherhood as a model for ministry as well. And so that year I preached uh, from the text right above this, motherhood, a model for ministry. And then I broke my rule because I never actually got to preach this one. And so, uh, so that's what we're doing this morning as we're making up for lost time about four years ago. And I know you guys have been on the edge of your seats this whole time <laughs> waiting. Is he going to finish that? Well, yes, we are this morning. You can finally get some sleep tonight. The, the series is over. So, uh, or at least it will be here in, about, here in about an hour and a half. No, I'm kidding. But... Um, but anyway, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. By the way, if you're using the, uh, the New American Standard, I think they do a better job of uh, smoothing out this translation. So I'm actually preaching from that this morning. And so um, I know our pulpit Bibles are ESV, uh, which is what I normally preach from. But uh, you should still be able to follow along. So uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. It says, As you recall, brothers and sisters, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I wanna tell you, um, I think I've told you this before, there was a time when I was young and my grandfather did everything he could to uh, turn me into a country boy and None of it really took, but, uh, but one of the things he did was uh, we had a squirrel camp that was, that was about a, uh, probably about two miles away from our deer camp, and he would store his ATVs over at the deer camp, and so there was one year he dropped me off at the deer camp. He said, do you know the trails to get to the squirrel camp? And I said, yes, okay, I'm going to drop you off, and I want you to drive the ATV down there. Well, 
I drove to what I thought was the deer camp, uh, kind of find out I got so lost in those woods <laughs> and, uh, and I could not find my way in or out. I couldn't find, I mean, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where I was going. I was doing it all on someone else's borrowed stuff. I mean, I would have made a, a great politician, but I was just, I was just lost uh, and could not find my way out. And, uh, and here about three hours, I, I was in the woods for about three and a half hours. And so I was actually beginning to think to myself, you know, my grandfather taught me how to make a shelter. He taught me how to do all that. Uh, I know how to do all that. I know how to camp, by the way. I just don't like to. So, uh, but we, I was beginning to do all that when he finally found me. And, um, and he was so happy whenever he found me doing exactly what he had taught me how to do. And when Paul went to Thessalonica, he spent uh, a minimum of three weeks there, and probably maybe a little bit more, but not very long, because there was some severe persecution that came up. And he had to leave the town immediately. You can read that in Acts chapter 17. And as he left, he knew he had left the Thessalonians prematurely. And he was very worried. In fact, we read on in, in chapter two and chapter three how worried he was uh, for this young church. Understand, when this letter was written, Thessalonica was at best six months old, is what we estimate. So this was a young church, very young church. And Paul had to leave them very early. And whenever he couldn't stand it anymore, he finally sends Timothy back to them in order to try to find out what's going on to see if they're even still there. He was afraid that the church had just completely dissipated. And having experienced that myself, I can tell you what, what pain is involved with that when you pour your life into a church plant and then leave only to see it just completely fall apart. And so um, when Timothy came back, he reported to him that not only was the church still there, it was thriving. So much so that even he says that we didn't have to say anything because, because the people themselves of Macedonia, of Macedonia and Achaia, the people themselves are telling us what's going on. I can just imagine Timothy traveling in this caravan, going to Thessalonica. He tells some guy, yeah, I'm headed to Thessalonica. And the guy's like, have you heard what's going on there? And tells them about the ministry of this small little infant church that was no more than just a few months old. You can imagine the excitement that Paul had whenever he went and he found them. He thought they were lost, but he found them doing exactly what he had taught them how to do, just like my grandfather found me that day. There's a certain amount of pride. There's a certain amount of, of, of just joy that comes with that. You know, Third uh, John uh, verse four, I have no greater joy than when my children are walking in the truth. You can just as, as a pastor, as a father, as a, as a discipler, you just see the, the blossoming discipleship of a, of a young man or a young woman. And just, there's no greater joy than that. No greater joy. Incredible fruit that, that Paul is seeing in this church. And, and by the way, how do we explain that incredible fruit in such a small church? Beloved, that is only by the sovereign decree and the sovereign plan of God. We, we cannot really explain that. But what we can ask, I don't think that's a real question here. The question I think we can ask is look at 1 Thessalonians and ask, what is there that they did while they were among them that we can emulate, that we can model in order to bring about whatever fruit that God has in mind? <clears throat> and that's what I think the models that we have here. 
And so as you see, beginning in, uh, and I'm just gonna look at verse eight just to give you a little bit of context. He has, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart not only to you the gospel of God, but also our very lives because you had become very dear to us. And I think what we see here as we go on, he's going to kind of explain, he's gonna say, when we were with you, this is how we expressed our love for you as a church. This is how we as church planters, we as pastors, we as people who are ministering the gospel among you, this is how we demonstrated our love, our Christ-like love, just like a father would his own children. So that's why we see this morning fatherhood, and I should say biblical fatherhood, a model for church ministry. And what must we do, beloved? We must demonstrate our Christ-like love for one another. You know, people will forgive a lot of shortcomings in a church. They'll forgive a lackluster music program. They'll forgive a lackluster uh, youth and children. They'll forgive lackluster preaching. They'll forgive a lot of things in the church, but one thing people will not forgive is a lack of love, is a lack of love. And it's very, and it becomes very apparent whenever you walk into a church, which by the way, let me just encourage you. One of the things I consistently hear from guests is you have a loving church there, Pastor. And I encourage you, keep up, keep up the good work, excel still more. And so, because that's how we demonstrate Christ-like love, like a father. And what does that demonstrated love look like? Well, we're gonna see here three fatherly examples that Paul gives us, three fatherly examples. And so let's look at these. You're gonna see that it involves sacrificial labor. It involves sanctified conduct. And it involves steadfast training. And so let's look at the three of these this morning, beginning in verse nine. He says here in verse nine, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We demonstrate Christ-like love, first of all, through sacrificial labor, hard labor work, sacrificial work even. What do we mean by sacrificial? I want you to notice, he says here, tirelessly, we worked among you. He says, our labor and hardship. That term labor is the term that we get, to, uh, we get copious from. It's copious labor, difficult labor, and strenuous labor as he talks about toil. Our labor and toil, our hardship. This was stressful work. You know that Paul traditionally was known as a tent maker. Um, that is true, but it's a little bit nuanced. Uh, more than likely, he was actually more what we would call today a leather maker or a, or a leather tanner. And if you've ever been involved in maybe tanning uh, deer skin or raccoon skin or 
rabbit skin or, or something like that. I don't know what you might have done, but if you've ever been involved with that, you know that that is a very time-consuming, very arduous process. It's very difficult. Um, it, it takes a lot of work, and especially when you're tanning it and making it usable to use in things like tents and dwellings and, and use it for like sword scabbards and stuff like that. It, it's, it takes a lot of time, and it's very difficult work. And so it's very hard, it's very strenuous. And not only that, he says he worked tirelessly night and day, day and night. This is, this is a continuous thing that he did. But he also did so lovingly. Why? He says, so as not to be a burden to any of you. You know, he talks about this um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 9 and verse 14. He says, uh, and by the way, I don't have any of the, of the cross-references up there this morning. Again, I apologize for that. But if you wanna look at 1 Corinthians 9, 14, he talks about, listen, uh, God, even though God commands, he works out from the Old Testament that God, yes, commands that those who preach the gospel should earn their living from the gospel. That is a, that is a biblical precedent. And yet Paul made no use of that precedent. Why? Because he wanted to not be a burden or cause any hindrance to the gospel whatsoever. He wanted to be able to boast that he preached the gospel free of charge. So that way he would not be associated with kind of the huckster philosophers that would walk into towns and set up booths and start teaching and, and all that kind of stuff. He didn't want there to be any kind of, any kind of, of hindrance to the gospel at all because he loved the gospel that much. He, loved, he wanted to preach the gospel in a way that no matter who people were, no matter what socioeconomic class they came from, man, woman, it did not matter so that everybody could hear the gospel because the gospel is beautiful and it is worth it. And it is what he wanted to do. His love for the gospel drove him to work night and day, day and night, and not only love for the gospel, but love for the Thessalonians. Because he said, I don't want, I preached this way, I did this so I would not be a burden to any of you. Let, just just get, the, get kind of the picture here of things that would happen in your typical Roman town. You would have a philosopher that would come in, a Stoic or a, or a, uh, or a Eucatic or whatever those guys were called. Uh, Epicureans, you would have these kind of people that would come in and they would set up kind of a booth, right? And then they would just start teaching and as people would come by, it might catch their attention and they would stop and they would just start listening. And then as they were teaching and, and the more they stopped, the more the philosopher would say, okay, you have learned from me, therefore you need to pay me. And they would have to take out a little coin or some little Roman coin or something like that and throw it in their little coffer so that they would go on teaching. And so they would, they would actually make a lot of money doing this. And then whenever, whenever the, the coins kind of dried up, they would pack up their booth and they would move on. And Paul says, listen, I'm sitting here preaching on my booth, so to speak. And when you come by and listen to me, you can imagine if you didn't have any money and yet there's this philosopher speaking here, right? What are you gonna do? If you don't have any money, you're just gonna turn and go the other way, right? You're gonna go the long way around, kind of like the survey people, you know, when they catch you at Walmart. You're, you're gonna take the other door, right? <laughs> you're gonna avoid them because you don't have the money to give them. Paul says, I want you to hear the gospel free of charge. I don't want that to be a burden for any of you. 
I don't want money to be the reason why someone does not hear the gospel. And I don't want lack of money to be the reason why someone does not stop and hear what we have to say. I want everyone to hear it, to be no burden to any of you. His love for the gospel and his love for the people drove him to work tirelessly night and day to support himself so as the gospel would go out without any hindrance whatsoever. Beloved, love makes you work hard, doesn't it? I mean, love is hard work. Always is. I remember when I was dating Roxanne, I lived in Thornton, which at that time was the northeastmost suburb of Denver. She lived about halfway, uh, kind of midtown in Colorado Springs. It was about an hour and a 25-minute drive. And I made it about three or four times a week. And to this day, I have no clue how I did that. I honestly don't. I, I don't know how I paid for it. I don't know how I survived it. There were days when I would, there were nights I'd get home like at three o'clock in the morning, then I'd get up at 5.30 to be at work at six. And I would do that like two or three times a week. And I have no idea how I managed that. You say, well, why, why in the world would you do that? Well, first of all, have you met her? <laughs> I mean, have you seen her? I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, come on, who wouldn't? But not only that, why would I do all that? Because I loved her. And I wanted to be with her and I was going to do whatever it took to be with her. You know, I've heard someone say one time and I've said this to my kids too, that love doesn't put food on the table. That's true, but not really, why? Because love makes you work hard to do whatever is necessary. Love makes you do whatever is necessary. And the sheer amount of labor that Paul did showed his love for them. Showed his love for them. When we love the gospel and we love the people, it will drive us to spend and be spent for both the gospel and the ones who need to hear it. When we love them. Romans chapter one, verse 14 and 15. I got a little lazy this week with the PowerPoints. I'm realizing how much time it takes to turn the passages now. So but Romans chapter one, verse 14 and 15, Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and the foolish. For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel. I am under obligation to all people to preach the gospel to them. Beloved, sloth, only demonstrates self-love. Sloth and laziness only demonstrates self-love. Diligence demonstrates love. And the question I would ask is, what, is our, what does our willingness to label, labor hard to communicate the gospel to people, what does that communicate to them about what we believe about the gospel? What does that communicate to them, what we feel about them? And what does it communicate that we love them, that we love the gospel? He labored not only hard for them, but also he was a model for them. We demonstrate Christ-like love, not only through sacrificial labor, but also through sanctified conduct. Look at verse 10. He says, and you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly 
and blamelessly we behaved toward you unbelievers. Paul reminds them, he says, and, and he's gonna do this a few times. In fact, he does it five times total over the course of chapter two and chapter three. But he says, once again, he says, you are witnesses of what? How devoutly and righteously and blamelessly. Devoutly speaks of our conduct toward God. The ESV translates it holy, and, and that is a good translation, but it's not the normal word you would think of when you think about holy. It is actually speaking of devoutly. It's being pleasing toward God, that his private conduct, his, his heart manner, his inward disposition was pleasing toward God. It's his pure motivation. And then we also see righteously, which emphasizes right conduct toward others. He was upright toward them in his conduct. He treated them well. He treated them righteously. And then blamelessly means that they were innocent, that, that there was nothing in their conduct, both with people and in their actions toward God, that someone could look at and accuse them of false motives or false things. And he says here that, that, that you are witnesses of this. Now, the Thessalonians, they could witness the upright conduct. They could witness how they conducted themselves toward the people. But I want you to notice here, he says, you were witnesses and so is God. Don't just read past that. You know, we hear people today say things like this, God is my witness and so help me God. And it's become kind of a, just kind of a thing in our culture. But in the New Testament, Paul only calls upon God as a witness five times in the entire New Testament. And guess what? Two of them are right here in Second Thess 1 Thessalonians chapter two. He says in verse five, he says that we never came to you with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a, con with a pretext for greed. God is witness. And then once again, down in verse 10, he says, you are witnesses and so is God. This is very solemn. This is very serious. Paul is emphasizing to them that when we came to you, we were genuine, our motivations were pure, our actions were, were truly motivated from what is within us. The purpose of all of it was, was so that they would see how much they loved you because our conduct was completely holy toward God and in turn, it was righteous to you. In other words, the only real true way that we can truly show that we love others is by living devoutly and righteously toward God and toward them. First John chapter five, verse two, you might wanna write that down. He says, for by this we know that we love the brothers. And you would expect, you would expect them to say, because we do this or we do that or, or whatever. No, he says, by this we know that we love the brothers. How? By obeying the commandments of God. You wanna know how to truly love someone? Obey God's commandments. Do what God tells us to do. Beloved, if our, if our love for one another is to be pure, if it is to be righteous, if it is to be good, it must be properly ordered. 
And anything that you love, anything that you obey more than God is by definition an idol. And the very thing that you say that you love, you will destroy. It will crumble under the weight of your worship. You are asking them, you're turning them into your own personal Messiah. You are making them out to be your own God and you will crush them in the process. The only way we can rightfully love others is to love God first. All love must be properly ordered. I love uh, Dr. Lawson. Steve Lawson is a preacher and a, a great guy. And I was listening to him give lectures on preaching and he shared the illustration that when water travels through a pipe, it tends to take on the characteristics of the pipe itself. And so when water comes out of a rusty pipe, some of, that, some of that rust will get in the water and make it taste metallic-y and rusty. And you know, in the same way, whenever we share the gospel, oftentimes if that gospel is coming through an unclean heart, that gospel will often carry with it characteristics of what is coming out of our hearts. And that's an illustration that has, that has just attached itself onto me. I, I often pray, Lord, make me a clean pipe. I don't wanna be a rusty pipe. And he was applying it to preachers, but beloved, the truth is the same, the same thing applies to churches. That oftentimes our gospel, our message will be hindered by the way that we sin against one another and the ways that we sin against the world outside. And it's such a sad thing when we see out in the community church members who are, who are being sinful toward people. That, that's such a sad thing. And you can bet that the gospel of that church is being hindered by that person's conduct. You can bet that it is. One of the theological points of church membership, the reason why we hold a high view of church membership is that we ought to be able to look at any member of our church and say, that is an example of Jesus Christ. And if we can't do that with an individual, then there's discipleship that needs to be involved. There's, there's, uh, there's things we need to do, teaching, instruction, pleading, possibly even rebuking if the needs be, even church discipline. But this is part of what it looks to live like Christ. And, and what does that mean for us? It means that we pursue sanctification. We pursue Christ through knowing him and being with him and being like him. Beloved, love is expressed through pursuit. When I was dating Roxanne, I expressed my love to her. How? I was pursuing her. I was, I was driving down an hour and a half, two or three nights a week on very little sleep and with no money whatsoever. And yet I was, and yet I was, I loved her and I was pursuing her. And by the way, fathers, the worst thing you can do to your marriage is stop pursuing your wife. That's the worst thing you can do. Fathers, the worst thing you can do to your children, parents, is not pursue your children. It's not their job to pursue you. 
It's your job to pursue them. It means we pursue sanctification, we pursue Christ. That pursuit that we have, that uh, of what we love, we pursue what we love and that has a shaping influence in our hearts. And we will begin to look like what we love. We will begin to act like what we love. Have you ever noticed that couples, when they've been married a long time, they start to, they start to kind of sound like one another? In some cases, they even start to look like one another. Some of you wives look at your husbands going, uh -uh. <laughs> have you ever noticed that? I've noticed even times when, uh, when you have someone who's really close to their pets, they even start to get kind of the same facial expressions of their pets. Have you ever seen that one before? <laughs> yeah, it can happen. What you love starts to have a shaping influence in your life. It starts to make you act like that, what you love. In essence, beloved, our, our most fundamental identity and life behavior is a function of what we love. And what you love is going to define you. John Owen said this. He said, a minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. Let me say that again, only let me put it in the context of the church this time. A church may fill their pews, their communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what that church is on their knees in secret before God Almighty, that she is and no more. Theology is not about what you know. It's about who you love. And that's why we study the scriptures. That's why we study the, the teachings of the scriptures. That's why we let it speak on its own terms. We don't try to fill it in with pop psychology and all that mess because we want the scriptures to shape us into the God that we want to love. And we can only do that if we let it speak on its own terms. So that's why we do it. We demonstrate a sacrificial labor, sanctified conduct, and finally through steadfast training. And, and this is where the NASB kind of smooths out things. If you have the ESV, you probably noticed uh, some slight differences here uh, because there are some phrases in verse, uh, in, in verse 12 that they bring up, that NASB brings up to verse nine to kind of help smooth it out a little bit. But here we go. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working, uh, excuse me, that's verse nine. Uh, verse 11, just so you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own. And so looking at verse 11 or verse 12, if you have the ESV, Paul once again gives a list of a few things he's reminding them of. He says, we were exhorting you, we were urging you, we were encouraging you, comforting you. And we were also, uh, you could say, either bearing witness or probably the better understanding is we were insisting, we were, we were appealing to you, we were charging you. In fact, the new revised standard even uses the word pleading for you. We were pleading with you to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and his own glory. Beloved, I want you to understand that that is the goal of the church, that every single person would walk in a manner worthy of God. Salvation is only the first part of that equation. 
Beloved, just like a church that says, just like a father who says, my goal is, is for the baby to be born. And then once the baby is born, the father's out of there. We call that neglect. And beloved, the church does the same thing when we say our goal is to get people saved and we get them salvation and we give them a handshake and then we just move on to someone else. That is neglect. The goal is not that just they would be saved, but that they would be sanctified and that they would be mature and that they would be walking in a manner that is worthy of God. And that is a lifetime of investment into the people of our church. That is a lifetime of training, a lifetime of teaching from diapers to depends. We are training and teaching you to walk in a manner that is worthy of God who has called you. The purpose of it all is that you would understand and that you are living in a new reality, a new kingdom in which you have been called by God into a new kind of relationship, a different family. And now we live differently than what we did before. And the point of all of these terms is that it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a shorthand, if you will fully orbed teaching. He, he says, not just preaching, but teaching, not just calling, but encouraging a full ministry, a full buffet of means, every means possible that is scripturally warranted in order that God's people will walk in a manner worthy of him. That is the true heart of every church. That's the true heart of a shepherd. That's the true heart of a biblical father. That's why I point you again to 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than when my children walk in the truth. In fact, uh, just turn a few pages over. Most of us, just one page to chapter 5 and verse 14. Paul is going to use these exact same words again in the exact same combination. He says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the unruly Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Beloved, here he's urging us, and, and, and I want you to notice this, this full understanding of word and gospel ministry. Who are, who are the idle? Who are the unruly? Those who have no desire to obey the word of the Lord. We admonish them. We admonish them to, it has an edge to it, kind of has teeth to it. We admonish the unruly. But what about the faint-hearted, those who, who have a desire to live for God, those who have a desire to obey the commands, to repent of their sins, but for some internal reason, they're faint-hearted. For some internal reason, there, there is some feeling that they just don't feel like they can. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's fear, Maybe it's discouragement. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's just despair. But for some internal reason, for some faint-hearted reason, they want to obey, but they feel like they can't. What do we do? We, we comfort them. We encourage them. And what about the weak? Those who desire to obey God, but they have an external reason why they feel like they can't. Maybe they're handicapped or, or maybe they're just up in age and they can't do the things they used to be able to do anymore. Maybe, maybe there's whatever external reason that may be. 
He says, help the weak. We help them to fulfill their calling. But whoever they are, whether they're unruly, whether they're faint-hearted, whether they're weak, what do we do? The end of the verse, be patient with all. Be patient with all of them. A fully realized, fully orbed ministry. There's a holistic fullness to ministry that Paul presents here. And just like a father who knows his children and knows what they need to be encouraged, to be rebuked, to be helped, whatever it is that they need, he knows what they need in order to do the right thing. Just so in a church, we know one another and we practice this fully orbed ministry toward one another. If you're weak, we want to help you. You say, Randy, I want to serve in various ways, but I'm just, I'm just, I've gotten old. My body's frail. I, you know, I, I walk with a cane now. You know what? We will find someone to help you. We will help you fulfill your calling. Randy, I'm, I want to, I want to help, but I'm, I'm just, I mean, what's the point? What's the point? It's just so discouraging to, to be preaching over and over and over again and yet see the pews empty and see the people not coming. I mean, what's really the point? Is that how you feel? We wanna encourage you. We wanna, we wanna comfort you. That our reward is not in the results. Our reward is with God for the faithfulness. We wanna comfort you. You say, Randy, I'm, I really don't wanna do it. I don't care. We want to admonish you. That is not how a Christian thinks. That is not the attitude you should have. We want to admonish you. But you know what? We're going to be patient with all of you because sanctification takes time, it takes a lifetime. And we're committed to you for that lifetime. I've been here 10 years. And I've been able to see such growth and maturity in the church in 10 years. I can't wait to see after I've been here for 40. You know, I turned 45 on Friday, so I'm halfway done. So, you know, it only gets, it only gets better from here, right? <laughs> I'm no fool, no siree. I'm gonna live to be 103, so, but. But beloved, just as a godly father, we see that ministry is performed through sacrificial labor, through sanctified conduct, and through steadfast training. You know, I've said this at the beginning that people will forgive many faults of a church, but they will not forgive a lack of love. And that love must be demonstrated. It must be real. It can't just be talk. And I think more than anything today, I think the reason why people flock to new churches, I think the reason why people are running toward the spectacle, I think the reason why people are running toward this and that, I think the reason why we're so sold out to political parties that just disappoint over and over and over again, I think the reason why all of that is happening is because people are looking for an answer, but more than that, they're looking for authenticity. They're looking for something real. And beloved, we have it. We have the gospel. Let's demonstrate it. 
And if you're here this morning and I wanna tell you just very quickly how the Lord demonstrates his love for us. He gave his only son to die for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. That is the greatest demonstration of love. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for a friend. And then he went and he demonstrated that love on the cross for those he would have as his friends. And that's why he tells his disciples, that's why he tells you, you, I no longer call you a slave, but I call you a friend. And if you would be the friend of God this morning, if you would be a friend of Christ, you must, you must confess your sins, humble yourself, confess that you are a sinner, be willing to turn from your sin and self-rule and submit to Christ as your Lord and Savior trusting in him fully for forgiveness of sins. And you can have the love that he demonstrated for you. I would love to give you more details of that here this morning. I know it's Father's Day. I know you have lunch plans. But if you're here this morning, I want you to know, if you, if you wanna know how you can know Jesus Christ, I, I will stick around. And... I will help you to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for those that are here. And Lord, we pray that these principles this morning that you've given us through Paul, we pray that they would make their mark in our hearts, that they would implant themselves deeply within us, and that they would enliven our souls that they would quicken us to do your work in us. Lord, if there's one here who doesn't know Christ as their savior, they don't have you as a father. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, I pray if there's, for our fathers and for our men here this morning, if they, Lord, perhaps we have this year allowed ourselves to be slothful, toward our families, toward you, toward the church. Lord, I pray we would repent of our self-love and that we would diligently pursue our families. Lord, I pray that you would have your work and have your way in our lives. In your name we pray, amen. I wanna ask this morning, if you're here and you want to, something to pray for, you need specific guidance or counseling or direction, I do invite you to come as we uh, sing this song together without him. Let's just sing maybe a verse or two, so.